Welcome to EOS podcast. Uh, we have with us today Jacob Zahn, who's the editor of the Terrorism Monitor at the Jamestown Foundation. Um, we're going to talk about Boko Haram and the Islamic State uh, in Africa. Um, the, uh, I was going to ask about, so since uh, Abu Bakr Shakao was killed in May 2021, so the leader of the, the renegade branch of Boko Haram, uh, ISWAP killed him and it has kind of moved into the area. Uh, how much of Boko Haram remains at the moment? Boko Haram has proven to be somewhat resilient despite the death of Shakao in the Islamic State West Africa province operation to kill him in 2021. For example, a new leader has emerged in Boko Haram known as Abu Umaima, who is also suspected of being called Bakura. Uh, whatever the case, the group still has a leader. Uh, the group still maintains that Shakao was on the correct path. The group still maintains that it is the true province of the Islamic State and that Islamic State in West Africa province where ISWAP is the misguided province, even though Islamic State only recognizes ISWAP. And uh, Boko Haram still carries out some attacks around Lake Chad. It has lost defectors to ISWAP. It has seen some of its members surrender as a result of Shakao's death and feeling like they no longer have a group to belong to. But nonetheless, uh, Boko Haram is still a force to be reckoned with, including to ISOP, which it combats. But it really is not a challenge to ISOP. ISOP is still by far and away the preeminent group in Nigeria and the Lake Chad region. Is there any sense of um, what the kind of numbers are between the two groups? It's very hard to gauge those numbers. A few years back, many analysts, including myself, would have suspected that ISWAP has somewhere around 6,000 fighters, but that could have been as low as 4,000 or even as high as 10,000. And also the definition of a fighter is somewhat hard because there are obviously some members that might go around their daily lives, but only join on occasion in certain battles, or there might be some children in the group who might join for certain battles, but otherwise live as children. Uh, whatever the case, Boko Haram, the Shakao faction was believed to have around 2,000 fighters, perhaps as low as 1,500 or as many as 3,000. But uh, nonetheless, whatever the exact numbers are, in the case of ISWAP, that group is able to carry out attacks throughout Borno all in a very short period of time, which indicates that they have fighting forces of significant magnitude all throughout that state. And Borno state is about as big as Belgium, it's often compared to, so, or, or the US state of Maryland. So let's just say they have, they have quite a bit of fighting power that can't be underestimated. Does Boko Haram hold to the, the Hazmi, <clears throat> excuse me, the Hazmi trend or the Hazmiya, um, the so-called extremists within the Islamic State, does Boko Haram use their kind of literature or identify with them? With the Islamic State? With the, the Hazmiya trend within the Islamic State. So the, the Islamic State at the center had this kind of rebellious group that declared the caliph to be an infidel and this kind right. of thing. Um, did they engage in, in that yeah. or, or are they... Right. You're right. Boko Haram and ISWAP never specifically cited that internal conflict within Islamic State in Syria and Iraq. And both Islamic State and ISWAP have 
uh, some peculiarities that would distinguish them from the specific debates of Islamic State in Syria and Iraq that you mentioned with the Hazamiya trend. But uh, because, for example, Shakao was uh, willing to use female suicide bombers, which is something that neither of those trends condoned in uh, Syria and Iraq. Uh, at the same time, Shakao's declaration that anyone who did not join his group was an infidel and could be killed, including ordinary Muslims, was actually similar to the most extreme trend of Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. Whereas ISWAP did find some synergies with some Islamic State uh, scholars who exchanged theological guidance notes with, with ISWAP. And that was generally uh, the, a more moderate trend that would avoid killing ordinary Muslims who did not join their jihad, but still accepted the death of ordinary Muslims in attacks on, say, the security forces if they were killed by accident. Uh, so you can find some synergies, but uh, perhaps more interesting is to find the peculiarities be, be behind the Nigerian uh, jihadist thinking. Interesting. Um, how, within Boko Haram now, the, the rumpus left, uh, do you know if there's much of a connection or connective tissue, I should say, with um, the armed Islamic group, the GIA, which I think in 95, during the election in Algeria, I think declared that anybody who voted at all was an infidel and could be killed. Um, is that there, is it just kind of an inheritance of thinking or are there actual members that cross over? There's definitely a similarity in thinking, so much so that when the small Al-Qaeda-affiliated faction, Ansaru, separated from Shikau in 2011, they wrote to Al-Qaeda in Islamic Maghreb, which is uh, a more moderate successor, you could say, of the armed Islamic group, that Shakao reminds them a lot of what they had seen in the armed Islamic group of the 1990s. So, so, they, do so they do recognize the similarity between Shakao and the armed Islamic group. And if you look for a more direct connective tissue, you can find that some Nigerians provided arms and perhaps even fought with, but certainly smuggled with the armed Islamic group in the 1990s. And they ended up fighting with Shakao early on in the jihad in Nigeria in 2009, but they ended up joining Ansaru. And some Ansaru members have ended up joining ISWAP. So whatever direct ties there were to the armed Islamic group operationally from the 1990s, likely no longer exist within Shakao faction or as it's known, Boko Haram. Uh, but anyone who would have been involved in that is likely either still in Ansaru, which, which exists in northwestern Nigeria now, or as part of ISWAP. Makes sense. Uh, the final question on this, for this section. Um, in, in Algeria, a huge part of kind of what went wrong for GIA was that they were so badly infiltrated by the, the security services, the so-called DRS. Uh, has this been a factor in kind of Nigeria? I mean, is there evidence of the government intelligence services and things kind of pushing the group into self-destructive behavior or is it just it, it does what it does there have been allegations in particular by Ansaru, which i just mentioned that shakao was an intelligence asset of the nigerian authorities namely that the mass killing by shakao turned off the populace of muslims from jihad and therefore weakened the jihadist objective in nigeria and therefore, they said Shikau maybe is collaborating with the intelligence agencies who are, who are now benefiting uh, from Shikau's extremism. 
That, that said, any direct evidence has not been provided of that. Uh, at the same time, there have been some credible reports, although still not 100% substantiated, that Chikau's faction may have leaked some information on defectors to Ansaru or even ISWAP back in the day so that the Nigerian authorities could arrest those defectors who opposed Chikau. And, and I do think that is somewhat um, plausible, but it still necessarily wouldn't mean that they're allied with each other. Um, but that's, that's actually an angle that deserves further research. But it, you can say for sure that Ansaru was highly suspicious of Shakao or those in his close ranks being infiltrated by the Nigerian secu uh, security services, or simply that Shakao, whether or not he had any relationship with the security services, his extremism ended up benefiting the Nigerian government. Makes sense. <clears throat> uh, in the summer of 2021, uh, you wrote a book for EER about ISWAP's tactics, kind of, uh, I mean, this was moderate and extremist in the sense, or kind of iffy, but they, the ISWAP had veered in a more moderate direction and was actually kind of appealing to the population. Uh, and this was posing a serious problem for the Nigerian government. Um, what does the, that trend line look like at this stage? I think that trend line has generally been stable. To be sure, ISWAP can be extremely brutal towards their opponents, including members of the Boko Haram faction, or civilians they suspect of collaborating with the Nigerian government, they can kill them in extremely brutal ways that are almost unconscionable. But uh, at the same time, towards those civilians who are neutral between ISWAP and the state, or those civilians who, of course, support the group, ISWAP generally has not done them harm. ISWAP may even um, may tax them, but not necessarily egregiously. ISWAP may also provide services in the area, such as Sharia courts, and may provide zakat or some charity to people in need. It might regulate markets to make sure there's no fraudulent products. It may provide protection on the roads so that people can engage in commerce, and ISWAP may take a small uh, tax for that. Uh, but there are not that many reports from civilians that ISWAP is, say, massacring them or videos emerging of ISWAP massacring civilians like had existed under uh, Shikau when he was the uh, most prominent figure. So I think the turn line is generally there that ISWAP has proven to be reasonable with the population in a number of ways. And that means that the population is not necessarily turning against them as much as the government would like. And that, in addition to ISWAP's strong military capabilities at this point, has made it so the Nigerian army has really not been able to overcome ISWAP in Borno, even while the Nigerian army has prevented ISWAP from capturing major towns for, for at least several years now. Um, more broadly in West Africa, uh, probably since about the time of Abdul Malik Drukdal, the AQIM leader being killed in June 2020, uh, the Islamists seemed to be on the upswing against Al-Qaeda. Um, is this was that true then? I mean, has it been true since, or is it very varied by, by locale? As far as Nigeria is concerned and the Lake Chad region, ISWAP, which is the Islamic State province there, is far superior to Boko Haram or the Al-Qaeda-affiliated Ansar faction. The Sahel picture is a little bit different. Group for supporters of Islam and Muslims, otherwise known by the acronym JNIM, J-N-I-M, is still the preeminent group in the Sahel, but 
Islamic State in Greater Sahara, otherwise known as ISGS, or officially as Islamic State in Sahel Province, has been surprisingly resilient because in 2020, ISGS had posed a threat to JNM's preeminence and they had constant clashes and JNM ended up winning out. And for almost two years until several months ago, it appeared that ISGS was far behind JNIM in capabilities. But over the past several months, ISGS has conducted some very large attacks, including against JNM itself, and has provided evidence of those attacks through photos and short videos that it has released. And it can't be said that JNIM has a all coasts clear in the Sahel anymore, given that ISGS, ISGS or IS Sahel province has been really surprisingly uh, able to be on the upswing and possibly once again challenge JNIM for preeminence. And the current clashes that they've been having over the past several weeks might end up deciding this in the near future. A slightly, uh, I guess, technical question, but uh, within that clash uh, between JNIM and um, Islamic State Sahel province, is it, are the kind of recruitment pools they're going for, are they kind of ethnically based or uh, tribally based or, and also do they, how do the kind of criminal networks map onto the jihadists in that region? The, the dynamics of the current clashes are not yet that clear, but if they mirror what we saw two or three years ago in that phase of clashes, they were fighting over similar recruitment pools and namely controlling the towns and the areas where recruitment was coming from. They were also fighting for good hideouts. So if ISGS could kill the JNI members in a, in a strong hideout, then ISGS could take over that hideout and that would benefit the group. But it also has to do with, as you mentioned, uh, trafficking routes, smuggling routes, all different types of contested territories, particularly in the borders of Burkina Faso, Niger, and Mali, have been fought over um, between the groups. And, and this is also not to mention the true ideological differences insofar as IS, at least two years ago, was still able to command ISGS to wage that war against Al-Qaeda because that was the same war that was happening elsewhere in the world. And they simply have different ideologies. Uh, now I'm not sure if the directives are coming from IS as much as they would have two or three years ago, given that IS is weaker in terms of its central apparatus in the Middle East. Um, but, but nonetheless, the, those clashes are persisting. Um, to switch over to the kind of the east of Africa, uh, last summer the UN reports on uh, Al Qaeda and Islamic State uh, reported that IS had in Somalia. About only about 300 men, mostly in Puntland. Um, interestingly, their leader is a dual Somali British citizen, uh, Abdul Qadir Munim. However, obviously, the ISIS in in Somalia remains kind of a marginal force, or it did at that time. Has there been much change in that, or is it still pretty isolated? Well, I would say that over the past years, a group like Al Shabaab, which is the Al Qaeda affiliate in Somalia has sort of been overlooked. It still is the strongest militant group in Africa, very possibly stronger than ISWAP, especially when you consider the way that Al-Shabaab really governs on a very local clan level across a wide swath of territory in Somalia, on, you know, consistently day in and day out. And so sure. IS Somalia has not really been able to pose a consistent threat to al-Shabaab in, for example, the same way that ISGS 
might be weaker than JNIM, but it's shown that it's able to improve itself and try to rival JNIM. Uh, I'd say IIS Somalia can still grow and it maybe still has 300 members, but right now it's uh, not, has not proven to be able to rival uh, Al Shabaab. Does the seen any hope of the uh, Somali government, such as it is, kind of extending outside Mogadishu, or is is that is the territory to the south mostly lost to, to Al Shabaab? For the time being, I don't see any major change in the dynamics of the conflict in Somalia. Uh, Al Shabaab has been pushed out of Mogadishu and Kismayo in the past decade, but the hinterlands of Somalia are still well under. Al Shabaab control, and although the Somali army uh, received some financing and training from international forces, including Turkey, it really has not done much more over the past years than to preserve the areas that the government currently controls. It really hasn't allowed the government to go on offensive on an offensive. And same with Al Shabaab, hasn't really been able to penetrate, say, Mogadishu, except for sporadic terrorist attacks. But control of Mogadishu seems unrealistic. It's actually a similar stalemate to what you see with ISWAP. ISWAP is able to control the hinterlands of Borno right now with fairly little concern from the Nigerian army to push them out. It's able to ambush the Nigerian army if it tries to go into the hinterlands. But the, the main towns and urban areas remain largely uh, unable to be penetrated by ISWAP. Um, that that UN report I mentioned also identified IS's Al-Qarar office in Somalia, which supplies finances and other things to the branches in the Congo and Mozambique and Afghanistan, it turns out. Um, is that, is the interconnectivity of ISIS in, can, uh, rather, can you speak to the interconnectivity of ISIS in Africa? For example, is there much of a connection between the Somali IS forces and those in Nigeria? It's interesting that you mentioned that since that is one of the more difficult aspects of IS in Africa to know about. But yet very recently, there was a report emerging from Algeria of an IS member in that country who claimed that they were receiving directives for their operations from ISWAP, which although it hasn't been corroborated by multiple alternative sources, such as say internal documents from IS, that sometimes we're able to obtain um, through either releases by IS or through intelligence or government agencies making them public. But, um, but that does seem plausible, given that IS in the center is having its own issues, its own challenges. And given that ISWAP has been so loyal to IS, has shown no sign of dissent, and that it's been so, so successful militarily and has maintained a constant line of communication to IS, that IS would just tell ISWAP that you can now run the show in at least West Africa. And so I wouldn't underestimate the fact that it might be ISWAP that's providing some guidance or support to ISGS to help them combat JNIM, as I mentioned, if not also to the, the smaller and more struggling Algerian IS uh, franchise. And this also reflects uh, sort of change, at least in the West Africa context, whereas previously it was, of course, AQIM that was the leading group in West Africa for Al-Qaeda. But now AQAM is just a shell of its former self, is almost non-existent, but for some propaganda videos. But JNIM, which is a bona fide Sahelian group, sub-Saharan African, is by far and away a you know, stronger group than AQAM. And once again, we see with IS, although Libya used to be its strongest province, now Libya has faltered for IS, 
but it's again the sub-Saharan Africans in West Africa, ISWAP, that may now actually be directing the, uh, the North Africans. So it's sort of a change of the center of gravity of both Al-Qaeda and IS as far as West Africa is. Interesting shift. Um, I also say, I mean, that just prompts a question about um, IS's internal dynamics. It's one of the uh, major successes of it as a, an organization is that bureaucratically, it basically its leadership is so homogenous ideologically that they kind of actually don't need to coordinate all that much because they, they think so much alike that they can take decisions quite autonomously. Um, is that the, the situation with ISWAP or are there kind of embeds from the center within the, the leadership there? I don't think at this time that there are a significant amount of, amount of embeds from IS core, namely the Syria and Iraq franchises in, uh, or Syria and Iraq core in, in West Africa, because they're struggling too much in the Middle East and it's hard to travel to Nigeria. There's intelligence agencies all over them. But in the past, that was likely more possible when IS was, was in its apex in 2015. But I think what you said is, is basically right. ISWAP has very well internalized IS theology, IS ideology, at least since 2015. So it's almost been a decade now. And they've used IS books and they're teaching to children. And so I think IS could probably have a very high degree of confidence that ISWAP could make the correct theological and operational decisions about how to run IS in West Africa without having to defer to the core anymore. Um, uh, somewhat related to this is the, the two IS hotspots in uh, very far to the south in sub-Saharan Africa in the Congo and Mozambique. Uh, it, do you have much of a sense of how dangerous they are both kind of to the local governments and in terms of potential spillover to, to neighboring states? Well, I think it, it cannot be denied that both are on the upswing right now. IS Mozambique, very much like ISGS, was quite prominent two or three years ago with some major attacks and controlling of territory, including threatening the liquefied uh, natural gas facilities in Mozambique. But, but over the past two years, thanks to Rwandan counterterrorism support to Mozambique, as well as broader South African, Southern African support, the IS province of Mozambique was struggling. However, the past several months, it's clearly on a resurgence. It's uh, controlling roadways, setting up checkpoints, controlling towns, and that momentum needs to be stopped or else we might see a revisit of what we saw two or three years ago. And IS Congo is still mostly centered in Congo, but it has spread its tentacles to an extent to Uganda, and both IS Mozambique and IS Congo have the possibility of extending their tentacles further into Tanzania and perhaps even countries like Malawi, if not also setting up financial uh, resourcing hubs in South Africa itself. So I think uh, just like ISGS has proven to be highly resilient and is growing stronger, you see a very similar thing happening to IS Mozambique and IS Congo. And, and it, is, it is worth asking questions, what's behind the resilience of these IS provinces after they take hits from uh, counterterrorism forces. And you might also look to some international funding that they are getting that is hard to see and hard to track from IS core that it still has, if not also ISWAP and other donors around the world. Uh, the measure of South Africa is where I was going to go next with this, because uh, that was a that financial hub has got a lot more uh, media attention, among other things, in recent months. 
uh, is how kind of important do you think that is to the the success of these networks in in the south i think it's fairly important because there are quite a number of sources showing recruitment in south africa funding in south africa uh, traveling to south africa logistically and so i'd say it's it's among the important uh, areas for is in africa but it's not necessarily the only one they may also have operatives in sudan in the case of iswap uh, in places like uh, Kenya, in the case of IS Congo and IS Mozambique, and then also their contacts in the Middle East. So South Africa is one of a number of hubs, and I don't necessarily think they want to carry out an attack in South Africa. It really hasn't been a particularly ambitious counterterrorism nation against IS forces. Um, and by attacking South Africa, it would probably only force South Africa to crack down on whatever logistics and funding and networks that IS has in the country. So it might be a, a better case of IS choosing to have a stalemate with South Africa and not anger the country too much in order to keep uh, whatever networks it has uh, still in use. That would make sense. Um, so final question was uh, basically about the Western policy towards this. Um, is there anything that the West really can or should be doing? Are uh, there kind of any immediate steps we could take to, to reverse this uh, upswing that IS is on? Well, one of the most interesting dynamics and not necessarily comforting dynamics of the growth of IS as well as Al-Qaeda in Africa in the past few years is that it's coincided with, in my view, the least attention that the US and probably also Europe has paid to terrorism in Africa since I can remember. And I began following these groups around 15 years ago. And uh, that's because the US is so preoccupied with uh, Russia and Ukraine. And, and there is obviously a very good reason for that. Uh, before that, the US was preoccupied with the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And I think the withdrawal of, from Afghanistan led to counterterrorism fatigue because that war did not go as planned after two decades. And for the US to say, you know what, we're gonna up our efforts to counterterrorism in Africa after what we saw happen with the Taliban taking over Kabul, that wasn't really a persuasive line to the American people. So on that end, it's not like seven years ago when there was constant US attention to say ISWAP and coordination with countries like Nigeria. At the same time, the mantra from the US has always been Africa, Africans should solve African problems, including when it comes to terrorism. And this period is actually giving a chance for African countries to step up the fight against the jihadist and other militant groups on their territories. And one notable example does come from Rwanda, which has played a significant role in counterterrorism in Mozambique. And that's not something you would intuitively have thought of. Unfortunately, while that has been somewhat successful in Mozambique, we have not seen the type of regional cooperation in West Africa to put those groups at bay. And that's partly because the governments of those West African countries like Burkina Faso and Mali have been engaged in coups and counter coups and uh, angering the French and kicking out the French and inviting Russian Wagner Group and not really having any consistency in strategy, either at the political level or military level. And that's why uh, West Africa right now is very, um, has a, there's a very strong indications that, jihad, that the jihadist groups in West Africa are, are poised to grow, if anything. 
uh, whereas there's a, perhaps a chance to put the ISM Mozambique FA and potentially IS Congo if countries like Tanzania and Uganda and Rwanda and Congo itself can, can coordinate better. Having said that was the last question, I did just want to tack one on because you mentioned about the, the Russian infiltration in West Africa. And the, a lot of these coups seem to be, if they weren't organized by the Russians, the Russians very soon moved in afterwards. Um, has that, has that, I know that you say it's coincided with um, a kind of reduction in counterterrorism operations, but does it seem that they will get back online or is the Russian presence going to basically be a boon to the jihadists? Yeah, I don't think the Russian presence will have any significant operational effect in terms of counterterrorism, uh, even if the, the Wagner troops from Russia were, were very competent. They're still too low a number to have a significant impact. Uh, they don't know French language. They're not particularly proficient in the type of warfare that's going on in West Africa. And I see it more of a political statement, the fact that a country like Mali would invite them. It's more of Mali saying, we're kicking you out, France. And now, look, we're inviting our, our old Soviet buddies you know, from Russia here to spite you. And, um, and but it, I think that, that in the broader picture, exemplifies why the counterterrorism effort is not going particularly well, because they're not taking it seriously. They're trying to score, as I can see, political points against France by inviting Russia and not even really combating terrorism successfully with the Russian forces. And if anything, the fact that there are the Wagner forces in the Sahel has been a propaganda boon for JNIM because they've been able to uh, kill some of them and then advertise that now that they're, now they're killing Russians. So it's, it's really uh, not a, a positive de development. And I don't see that changing the situation for the better in any way, shape or form. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Uh, nice talking to you, Kyle. Thank you.